Hello, you're listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by me and my own Rebirth Tour. The next couple of shows are sold out, but there are some tickets available for Southport, 23rd of May. It's going to be good. Aylesbury, 6th of June. Watford on the 7th of June. Watford, the last time I was there, it was an absolutely fantastic evening. It was chaos, mayhem, and it can only get better. Skegness on the 15th of June. I think that's pronounced Skegness. Skegge. And Bristol on the 20th of June. If you want tickets, go to russellbrand.com for details. If you like Under the Skin, please review us on iTunes. Give us a five star review we're not interested in partiality we're not interested in objectivity what we want is glory grandeur flattery and narcissism i'm an expert at that you'll appreciate Today on Under the Skin, we've got a fantastic guest, a person I've spoken to numerous times on The Truth and whose journalism I followed very closely. And yet his surname, I still feel nervous every time I say it, George Monbiot. Does that sound right, George? Oh, wow. George Monbiot is a world-renowned British writer known for his environmental and political activism. He writes a weekly column for The Guardian and is the author of a number of books, including How Did We Get Into This Mess? That's a book that I should read (laughs) just for my domestic life. How Did We Get Into This Mess? Politics, Equality, Nature. The Age of Consent, colon, a manifesto for a new world order, and Captive State, the corporate takeover of Britain. He is also the founder of The Land is Ours, a peaceful campaign for the right of access to the countryside. Well, George, I mean, you're one of the people that uh, I suppose uh, autodidacts and semi-educated people like myself turn to to explain to us in reasonable and accessible terms the state of the world. We stand, in my view, on the precipice of something peculiar. What is happening in the United States of America? What does this snap election mean? Is there a hope for a new kind of democracy? Can a bipartisan parliamentary system deliver unto us through the Labour Party some kind of return to social care this and so much more george it's over to you what's going on <laughs> well look there's been a a worldwide collapse in mainstream democratic politics and and there's all sorts of reasons for that but the primary reason for that is that it's simply not delivering it's not changing social outcomes in the way that you would expect it to change social outcomes in the democratic era it's not ensuring that things happen about inequality. It's not making sure that people get the public services they need. It's not making sure that it sorts out our environmental crisis, Mm. our air quality crisis, our schools crisis, our health crisis, all Mm. of those things it's not dealing with anymore because it's governed by an ideology. And the ideology is called neoliberalism. Yes. Neoliberalism says you don't change social outcomes. You're not supposed to. If you start messing with social outcomes, you're messing with the beneficial inequality which tells you who the good guys are, the winners, who the bad guys are, the losers. Mm. They ought to be the losers because they have no merit. They don't deserve to win. Therefore, they should fall by the wayside. So is neoliberalism every man for himself? Is that what it is in ideology? Because when people are sort of say like a Tony Blair was a neoliberalist politician, what would he say? He, he would say, well, you know, it's a society where people are rewarded on the basis of what they can achieve. Meritocracy. Is that what neoliberalism is? Because I'm using that word all the time and I'm not sure I know what it means. Well, you know, it's, it's a strange thing because that's how it started. 
Um, when the the word was first invented in 1938 by the, these guys who they don't like to be called anything nowadays. They they want to bury the term. They want to to because pretend. it's become negative. Well, yeah, and they like to pretend that this is just a natural order of things. This is just a biological fact, like Darwinian evolution. You know, mm. it's just this is how things are. Whereas this is a a, a deliberately conceived and promulgated ideology that we're talking about. True power masks itself. So neoliberalism says it's not even there, but as defined by you, it's if... It's a meritocratic system where, there, started, where the state should be minimally interventionist. It started that way. But then by the time its real big author, Friedrich Hayek, came to write his book in 1960 called The Constitution of Liberty, it had actually evolved a long way from there. And he then said, well... You know, it doesn't matter whether you inherited your wealth or whether you earned your wealth. In fact, it's better if you inherited your wealth because then you can um, just stand back and use it to change society. The rich are virtuous because they are rich. That was the, the message of the book. And nothing should stand in the way of what they want to do. They should be completely free to do whatever they want to do. And if that has a cost on other people, that's fine. That's the natural order of things. That's how it ought to be. You stand in the way of the rich and you prevent society from evolving. That that was the story that was put out. But that even in the terms that you're putting it in doesn't sound like a great idea. That sounds already like a, yeah, come on the mic a bit more, George, get a bit closer in, because otherwise uh, in this podcast I'll come across as like some obnoxious loudmouth <laughs> and you, a meek, lovely man, trying to gently educate. <laughs> and that would be very that misleading. Quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, George, even when you described it as you did then, as like, oh, you know, just let rich people get rich and everything will work out. Like that even, even that sounds quite bad and you saying that actually what neoliberalism is as we experience it now is something that's worse than that that it's a deliberate ideology that's sort of based on the sort of neglect of a large percentage of the world's population yeah and that neglect arises from the need to allow the rich to do exactly what they want because if you were to constrain them Mm. if you were to say you know we're going to have good progressive taxation which redistributes wealth which pays for public services in other words proper public investment if you were to say we're going to have strong public protections which means you can't dump your carbon in the atmosphere you can't dump your pollution in the rivers you can't treat your workers like slaves you can't put all sorts of shit into the food all that sort of thing then you are restraining the rich and that's the, the thing you're not supposed to do. I understand, George. So with the, sort of the story of our time is that things are just this way because it's the best way things can be. And, and yes, it's not perfect, but, but, but actually everything that's happening now is happening because it's beneficial to the people that are in the most advantageous positions. This is not a coincidence. It, it's a self-serving racket. It didn't start that way. I mean, to begin with, they said, you know, state power is a real threat. Look at Stalinism, look at Nazism. Um, anything which tends towards state power is a bad thing and that includes the welfare state that includes the new deal in the US therefore we've got to stop all that we've got mm. to stop it all and they genuinely believed that but it quickly became this self-serving racket because the whole infrastructure of neoliberalism all the think tanks all the media all the academic departments was paid for by multi-millionaires mm. starting in the 1940s continuing today really really rich people have funded this and weaponized it and made sure that it's 
it's got out as far as possible so that it just begins to sound like common sense because everyone's saying it. So all Arthur, these different think tanks are saying it, all these different journalists are saying it, all these different academics are saying it, so people think, oh, well, that's just the way it is. It becomes received wisdom. So after the Second World War, to stop there ever being a state power so uh, unquestioned and dominant that it could lead to tyranny, like you said, like fascism and uh, Stalinism, like... We we create a system where oh you're liberal to pursue whatever financial interests you want to, and the state will kind of take care of itself in a, a somewhat minimalized way, and that's led to a situation now. Well, something I sensed in the air like a couple of years ago, and perhaps I don't know, perhaps I've always felt is that the rhetoric of the say call it the media class that that sort of seemed to sort of surround like the new labor era where you sort of feel like it used a kind of like the language was kind of gentle and personable and sort of there was some idealism i started to feel like it was detached and not real and it seems like a similar thing was happening in america although it's a vastly different country and vast perhaps is the word that describes it best and like i felt like there's a detachment like i felt that people were becoming like and i think that what delivers to us uh, a pres- president like Trump and a, a situation like the, the sort of post-Brexit Britain, which we, it feels like there's a lot of fear and anguish and dissatisfaction, was that what preceded it was, like you said, a government governments across the world that were unable to deliver favourable outcomes to their populations and seemed sort of not really to care about that, just paid lip service to it. So now it seems what we've got is a time where emotion has risen to the surface, anger seems to be very, very prevalent. Donald Trump, like a pustule king of an angry, broken democracy. So is it like, that's what's gone on, is it, mate? Well, um, I'll try and answer those 42 issues in <laughs> one question. Um, so, so to begin with, it didn't get any traction. Like, after the Second World War, just about everyone was for the social democratic view of the world, John Maynard Keynes, all that good public investment, good public services, spreading wealth around. Right. Look then, after society after right, things exactly. will kick off. Then that ran into trouble in the 1970s for all sorts of reasons. The neoliberals then turned up and said, we've got the answer. Here you are, all you governments which are struggling, just do this. And so they're, oh, thanks very much. And then by the time Thatcher and Reagan got into power, they went for the whole thing. Um, break down trade unions, break down public services, massively reduce the tax on the rich, massively deregulate everything, let Mm. the financial sector do whatever it wanted. And the big problem then that the the old left had, uh, which was disintegrating, is it came up with no new story. Instead of saying, okay, Keynesianism got into trouble. It was great while it lasted. It was brilliant. But now... We need something new. They failed to do that. And so Mm. what they ended up doing instead, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton and the rest of it, was to triangulate. They said, well, we'll have a little bit of the old story and a little bit of the new neoliberal story. And we position ourselves somewhere in the middle. And they just lost all their principles. They lost everything that they were supposed to stand on. And what you got instead was this political drift which took them further and further towards neoliberalism. Because faced with the dying star of social democracy and and the powerful gravitational pull of this radical new neoliberal agenda, they just got sucked further and further into it until you couldn't distinguish them anymore from the people that their parties were supposed to oppose. Yes, and it sort of led in the last election, I suppose, to sort of like barely discernible or identified like, politicians that all seem like the same as one another. Like the kind like what I became uh, sort of 
popularly understood to be saying was like, oh, there's no point, there's no point voting, none of this means anything. And I think that was a, the sentiment I expressed was something that a lot of people felt like it's sort of like all these politicians, they look the same, they're kind of similar, they're saying similar stuff, no one wants to do anything radical or different and no one seems to be, seems to really care about ordinary people. And so what happened is what you see with Trump is that that generated an anti-politics. Mm. For exactly the reasons you're saying, people thought they're not offering anything, there's no real political choice here, mm. I haven't got any power in this electoral system. And as far as I'm concerned, the political elite, whether it's Labour Conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, it's just a jabber above my head. They're just jabbering away above my head and it's meaningless jabber. Political debate isn't getting us anywhere. Political argument isn't getting us anywhere. Then this guy crops up. Slogans, sensation, sentiment. You know, forget all the... Forget all the arguments. Forget all the issues. He's just going to tell you, I'm going to make you great. I'm, I'm going to make you dominant. It's amazing I'm going to allow you to ridiculous. trample those minorities. I'm going to allow you to do what you want. And people say, here's someone speaking my language. Because for the first time, someone's actually talking in big terms rather than in little pettifogging terms. It might seem like a sort of an odd comparison, but I read a book once about the craze and they said, do you know what is astonishing about the craze? They weren't like, I mean, for a start, there's only two of them and then a little bit of a gang in East London. And with fear and violence, they had an incredible impact. And like I said, they, was, they had a a massively destabilising influence on sort of London economics and on good crime and like they've essentially set up a little state, a criminal state. And what this, the bloke who wrote the book, whose name I would remember if I was a better academic or indeed an academic said like, was like, it just shows you, what's terrifying he says is how much can be achieved by a small number of people using the right kind of, in this case bloody, you know, fear and violence. Now, doesn't it show you, in a way whilst it, like, most right-minded people would think that oh, Donald Trump kind of power is a pretty negative thing because of the, the because of the sort of things you described, like maybe like the sort of the empty sloganeering, the jingoism, the fear and the hatred. Doesn't it also demonstrate that the potential for change continually exists, that it's possible to kind of bypass things that seem somewhat entrenched? Like, sort of, like this idea that the election coming up in this country now, like is between sort of like a, a Labour Party that's saying, and we'll cancel tuition fees, we'll get rid of zero hour co- like you know, it's forced the left to sort of return to a kind of a, a more recognizable agenda. But that's p- precisely why Corbyn and the current Labour Party are being ridiculed, is because they are saying we'll have, you know, we'll renationalise parts of and you know, like people are sort of like some I noticed newspapers can just report that as if it's an outlandish and ridiculous thing. So we're going to renationalise energy and trains and stuff. Give while... people what they want. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, why, want why, why? Why? But but well, the Daily Mail when they report that, like it's like oh, it's going to be a return to the seventies. No one sort of like they they don't need to mask it. It's like we've been trained to think, oh, that's bad nationalising things. Well, there is a problem in that it's not really presenting a, a new story and. You know, while the individual policies, a lot of them are deeply popular. That's what we we see very clearly from the opinion polls. Those individual policies are deeply popular, but where's the framing? We need a framing. Which Do you says, mean like a vision? Yeah, exactly. So Trump, for all his bombast and ridiculousness, and we and how we laughed when he announced his campaign, he was a kind of visionary, he, and his vision was no. make America great again. Well, what was it then? It was just no, like no, a sort no, of no. A, I think that, I think you can separate this into two different things. On. There's there's a sort of politics and there's anti-politics. Mm. And Trump Trump's election ca- happened because of a reaction away from 
political argument, from issues, from policy, because those weren't delivering anymore. And you can kind of get away with not having a real vision or a programme or anything like that if, you, uh, if you're a demagogue, if you're a if anti-politics. If you can stir sentiment. Exactly, sentiment, exactly. All you have to say is, I'm not them. Yeah. I'm someone who talks direct to you. I might be talking complete bollocks, but I'm talking direct to you and I'm not them. If you're in the business of politics like actually coming up with programmes and manifestos and policies and stuff like that, then you have to produce a new story. You have to produce a story... By story, you mean with, vision? You, well, more than vision. It's, it's, it's a story... A of vision and how it's going to work. Yeah, yeah. It's a story which says, we are such and such a person, uh, type of people. We are trapped for all sorts of reasons. We're thwarted for all sorts of reasons. But we can become the amazing people we are if we do this and we can get this better vision, this better world emerging from that. And Did and, Podemos do that? Did Syriza do that? Did these sort of socialist or leftist type movements in Europe, Beppe Grillo, did, did they do that? There, there, there's there's something of that there, but it's it's not. But it's also as, anti-politics, isn't it? Because yeah, you do need a degree coherent. of anti-politics because we've got the type of politics that you've said for a half a century hasn't delivered, hasn't affected people's lives. So anti-politics is going to be part of it, isn't it? It is going to be like, look, this lot, we don't trust them. That's going to be a component, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a really thin line to tread because you know the great danger we face worldwide now is a resurgence of a kind of fascism is a resurgence of the demagoguery the extremism that we we saw in the 20th century and you know Le Pen's close run um, uh, the way that UKIP policies have been incorporated yeah, into the Tory party. Um, Donald Trump, obviously, um, uh, you can see it in the Philippines, you can see it in Hungary, you can see it in Turkey, mm. you can see it in India. Th- this is happening. In all these cases, well, when you say fascism, you're saying you're just saying nationalism, aren't you? Well, it's it's more it's more than just nationalism. What what fascism is in essence is is basically the the abandonment of rational politics the abandonment of trying to come up with solution actual solutions to actual problems and what it does instead is to say to hell with all that we're going to give you military music we're going to make you stand up and raise your fists in the air and shout we're going to tell you that your problems come from those people the jews or the muslims or the immigrants or whoever they might be so you can blame them for that we're going to say everyone's doing a version of that anyway well there is a version but isn't of it, but, isn't the- but Donald fascism Trump. strips away all the other stuff. The pretense. I mean, the in a way, like, look, obviously, I'm not fascist, yeah. but, but like, but like, when you say, like, like, do you know what I sometimes think, George, is that, like, we, do, like, isn't Donald Trump just a dialed-up version of what was going on anyway? I mean, like, when you say that the military music and blame people, I mean, what's going on now in this country? I mean, like, you know, have some pageantry, stick a poppy on. It's the Muslims' fault and the refugees' fault. We'll clamp down on that. I mean, it's a little bit mutated. And what I think that weren't you saying at the beginning of this interview that neoliberalism is a kind of mar- Masked fascism anyway. The people in power are doing exactly what they want and they're abandoning any kind of pretense at social... Well, not abandoning the pretense of social projects. They're hiding behind a veil. But no one. we know that the ordinary people's lives are not... The ordinary people are not able to engage with democracy in a meaningful way. So isn't fascism just the bold expression of the way power works and neoliberalism a concealed expression of power? Well, there is a spectrum. There is a spectrum. Right. But I, I would... I mean, fascism is really hard to define because it doesn't have a coherent ideology of its own. Um, but, but what... And, and I would say that nowhere in the world at the moment do we have outright fascism, but we have a lot of moves towards it and a lot of danger that we could get there um, because an absolutely crucial component of 
fascism as understood in the 20th century was pa- was was the use of paramilitary groups Ooh. to terrorize uh, opponents and have we got that basically, well um, not not in this country not yet in america um in some parts of the world yeah but without all the other accoutrements of fascism. So, so there are well, elements of We have got the it. nationalism, though, haven't we? Yeah, in all, all the nationalism is part of it. Nationalism India. is part of it. The abandonment of um, political argument for sort of crude rhetoric and just sort of slogans is part of it. The the use of but like, do you know what? I want to pick you up on that point because the replacement of like you know because the crude rhetoric it wasn't replacing functional politics anyway we've established that so it's like the crew like so what for the you know the crude slogans isn't replacing anything of value so like what i like it was replacing neoliberalism which wasn't functioning and that's why people became open to this new kind of sloganeering and sort of nationalism and potentially fascistic move like these kind of like we're loosely describing them as fascist but as i mean i i mean i don't know but what i suppose the, the what interests me is that if there, if it's possible for n- new movements to use nationalism and emotion in the kind of raw way that Trump has, that Le Pen almost did, and other like you know, sort of we've got a nationalistic government in India, and as you said, the Conservative Party is eaten UKIP and is sort of belching up its policies into our gaping and welcoming mouths even now. Uh, does that not mean that it's possible for a, comp- uh, like, you know, like a reason I mentioned Podemos, uh, Syriza and stuff, is it possible for a more socially, socially conscientious movement to rise up oh, using totally the same tools? It is. I mean, I mean it's, it's just a yawning gap for people to move into. But, and it's amazing how how useless people have been in moving into that gap so far. And part of that reason is we don't have the coherent new narrative, which is essentially it has. Podemos, Syriza uh, and others have begun to develop that, but it's not it's not what it needs to be yet. It's not there yet. In this country, you know, God bless them, you know, Corbyn's lot, uh, 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 have they were, began to make a move to that. You know, when, when Corbyn first became Labour leader, they were talking about doing just that, but unfortunately they didn't. Why? I, I don't know why. I don't know. I mean, there was internal divisions within the party. You know, they're all ripping each other's eyes out. We know about that. They're not very strategic. They're not very clever at the, the business of politics. I mean, it must but, be hard because the context that they have to exist in now has been is mutated into this, like, what do you have to become to succeed in politics? We saw what had to happen to the Labour Party in order for it to become electable like, no, you know, in the 90s. I don't believe it did have to happen, you see. I, I, I think, you know, it Blair, did, I mean, though. well, you see the size of the majority that Blair got. You know, mm. He could have got in... On a very different platform, people were so sick of the Tories. But people are sort of sick of the Tories now, aren't they? But we don't even know how to. F- we can't even articulate that because it doesn't feel like sick of the Tories anymore. Because we literally can't envisage anything different. There's one, something I'd like to. Um, something I want to query with you as, as well, George, is that that it's been said and it's becoming clear that the return to nationalism is to some degree a reaction to globalisation. The feeling that people had, like, you know, sort of leaving the EU, it sort of clearly wasn't like, I'm sick of these trade pacts or what. I mean, I don't know what people, I sense that what people were thinking is, we want control. We want power in our lives. And the only sort of motif that people can cling to in to, to be antipathetic or to confront globalisation is nationalism. But we know that nationalism 
nationalism don't work. We know that it doesn't work. We know that nationalism's a, a sort of a feudal idea that's based upon privilege. Can is there a good version of nationalism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what people are cr- craving here is is belonging. They belonging. want to have a sense of belonging. They want to Emotion. feel they belong. And, you know, that's a fundamental human urge. I don't blame anyone for wanting a sense of belonging. But you can do that through community. You know, we need to rebuild communities. We need to make our communities strong again. We need to feel we belong to those communities. And, you know, I'm not talking about ethnic communities or, or, or about exclusive communities. I'm talking about communities that anyone can be a part of, but that are rooted in places, rooted in real places where you mm. say, here's my street. Here's my neighbourhood. This is where I live and I'm proud of this place and, and, and I want to live in this place and, and I know my neighbours and, and, and they're friends of mine and we do stuff together God. and we're building an economy together we're so and far we're building from that, a politics we? together. We're so far We've from become that. totally dislocated from that. Yeah, yeah. One of that, the, I think it's a fundamental thing that's it's missing. A, but it's interesting when I always get these sort of like, you know, like, I don't hope I'm not being dismissive, but very intellectual and brilliant and well-educated people need to have these conversations and we quite quickly find ourselves talking about emotions. We quite quickly find ourselves so, like, like people have forgotten how to love, how to belong, how to connect. Mm. And it's in what you're describing there, that sort of sense of community, it seems like that can't be delivered under capitalism. And one of the few things I understood about Marxism, and by God, I can count them on the, the fingers of one hand and not my hand, someone who's lost fingers in an accident, an industrial accident <laughs> that Marx would have prevented from happening. Like, um, like, it's like they saying that, that sort of mass production creates alienation and disconnection. Mm. Well, there was this thing that I'm fascinated by, and I mention it all the time, is that Gandhi, during the sort of campaign for Indian independence, said, we don't just want an independence where a bunch of Indians come in and replace the British. We need autonomy. India is a country of 700,000 villages. These villages should be fully autonomous. We want a, a, a confederacy of intercommunicating villages. Now, when you're talking about that kind of communal pride, people feeling connected to their town, to their village, to their street, how can that happen when we have transnational corporations hoovering up all the money, when we have government which have limited power. And the return to nationalism is clearly people's sort of emotional attempt to buff it and confront this phenomena, isn't it? I would agree with every single thing you've said there. And what you've got with, with globalisation is, first of all, it sweeps the jobs away from under your feet and outsources them to somewhere else. Second, it sweeps the power away from you and outsources them to the World Trade Organization or the IMF or the European Central Bank and other bodies like that. Um, and, and, and thirdly, it sweeps the identity away from you, saying, forget about your neighbours, look at Kim Kardashian. You know, mm. look, sort of focus on on celebrity culture instead, and and make them your virtual neighbours. And you know, mm. there's, there's no accident that we're all so obsessed with celebrity culture because mm. um, it's it's it, it's basically it's the mask that the machine wears. It's the way that corporations sell their stuff. You know, if you in some grey office block uh, registered in in a post post box in Panama, you know, you need a way of connecting with your customers, and that's Kim Kardashian. That 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 is a celebrity whose face you wear to say. This is us, you know, and we're your friend. I'm your neighbour. I'm mm. the person you see more than you see your next door neighbour, and so mm. and that's another aspect of globalisation. And so, so, so but these th- avatars those... are ultimately just trying to sell you a product, yeah, all yeah, of them, yeah, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. Like sort of the message of the Kardashians. I'm sure, as human beings, I'm sure they're lovely, but we're talking in the context of uh, as, as corporate tools. The message is buy this product. Yeah. So we don't like, you know, whereas a, a neighbour, there is a, a, one can have an affiliation based on mutual need and connection. Yeah. We've been. Unactualized. Yeah. We're not. Act- 
factual in our lives. Everything has become virtual. Everything has become a reflection, a mirror, an avatar. Now that's it. Like so, I see what you mean. It's not an innocuous, meaningless, vacuous thing. Celebrity. It is a an, an integral part of the veil. One of my friends, uh, like a dear friend of mine, who's a, a a movie star, talked about sort of like a sort of like both of us have been in the sort of the white heat of Hollywood. You know, when I was like making proper like big movies and all that stuff. And he said that's a really weird thing to experience. He's experienced it. I've experienced it when you're flown around the world on jets promoting movies and you feel powerful and you feel important and then it goes away it yeah. goes he goes but all those things that you're experiencing the fame the money the privilege those were just the symptoms and side effects of someone else making money out of you and once they're not making that money ta-da it's, a, it's yeah. over it's not actually about you it's not real it's your temporary participation in that and it was sort of it was a sort of a quite a chilling thing. He says, you know, you shouldn't regard that as something that you long for or regret or feel diminished by the loss of, but something that you survived. <laughs> you have survived uh, uh, like that, that experience. Like that, yeah. And like it is hard because like, I'm a very you know, like my ego is a considerable part of my identity. Perhaps, you know, God, were it not for my spiritual beliefs, it would be its totality. <laughs> but, like, like, you know, it's very difficult for us, George, I think, to find, like, the, the areas that I think like, that I'd like to broaden and incorporate is how do we bring compassion, emotion, connection into this argument? And one of the only sort because all of the time people will say, oh, it's wishy-washy. Look at what's happening to Labour now. They say, let's renationalise, let's do this. And, like, the essential pose of the of the governing party seems to be oh they don't know what they're doing they let the grown-ups stay in charge right so it seems like there does need to be a sort of a component that is somewhat fierce hence you do need the jingoism of trump or the sort of totalitarian force and polemicism of adolf hitler because like when people like they they laughed at hitler oh this ridiculous little man and his daft little mustache but he's just like went straight for the heart straight for the emotion and you you know like it's like of course these it tends to exclude and create hatred and condemnation and all of that but it seems at some level what's required is force it's well, not going to be sort of an academic proposal of like listen we're going to try our best to share well what's required is connecting with those parts of our minds which actually guide us and you know we have this enlightenment myth that we're guided by cold reason you know we sit mm. down and say Right, I am a totally rational being. What's in my rational self-interest? How do I compute this? And here is the answer. It's 42, and therefore I'm going to do the following. That is simply not how we work. How we work is to say, what do people like me think? What are they doing? Mm. Um, what, 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 what feeling is, am I picking up from this? Is it a good feeling? Is it a bad feeling? Is there a story that I can hear, that I can latch on to and that I can be swept along with? That those are the things which make the political difference. People like me saying, well, here are the facts and figures. Here's what's really going on. Here's what you ought to do. We, we don't touch it. We just don't touch it because, because actually it's at the emotional level that people operate. And what people yeah. want is attachment. They want attachment to a group. They want attachment to a story. And until politics can give them that attachment, it's not going to get anywhere. And, and, and what I want, want a sort of generous, inclusive politics to do is not to ape Hitler or to ape Trump, but to say to understand that people need that, that they need that sense of connectivity and to give them a story, a story grounded in fact, a story which is true, but a story which tells them about who they are, where they are, 
what's stopping them from being the people they want to be and what we can do to get us to that place. What they want is a feeling of community and connection which says, you are part of this mm. and it's very exciting to be part of this and by being part of this, we're going to tell the story, we're going to realise the vision. This is beautiful. George, what, uh, what is the role of data capture and some of the stuff we're reading at the moment about the hijacking of democracy by data mining and that sort of, what's it called, that Cambridge analytics or whatever? Yeah. What's well, gone on there, look, The please? first thing to say is there's some really bloody scary stuff going on, but actually I don't think most of it is focused on Cambridge Analytica. I think that's a red herring. Mm. Um, and the reason is that people have taken its boasts about what it could do at face value. And there's been quite a lot of analysis done on that. And those boasts don't actually seem to stack up. It didn't have the capacity to do that massive data mining. It said it could. Because what, what did they say? They said that they were able to... What go to people's Facebook accounts, um, uh, give create profiles of... of of all the uh, massive number of voters in America on the basis of their Facebook accounts and then tailor political messages to those people and deliver them to those people. And there's all sorts of technical reasons why at the moment that's not possible. So basically it seems to be hot air, but there's a whole lot of other really nasty, dangerous stuff which is currently under the radar. And a lot of that involves what the Americans call the dark money network. And this is a great infrastructure of think tanks, of fake grassroots organisations. They pretend to be spontaneous gatherings of citizens, but they're all paid for by billionaires, um, of of persuaders in the media who, who basically have refined and refined the models of telling us that black is white and white is black and true is false and false is true until we just don't know where we are anymore. There's a lot of effort going into sustaining and maintaining this system. It's not happening inadvertently, is it? If not in this... the least. Not in the least. I mean, when you look, and it goes back, you know, we were talking about neoliberalism and where that came from. This goes back to the foundation of the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947, 70 years ago, where they quite they sat down the Swiss resort on Mont Pelerin, and they said, we have to create this apparatus, this infrastructure of justification, of persuasion. And we, what we're going to do is we're going to found loads of think tanks, we're going to fund academic departments, we're going to cultivate journalists, and we're going to get this message out there. And so this, this sort of big data type thing has been going on for 70 years. And, and what's happened is that it's come to fruition. That's what we're seeing. We're reaping the result of that 70 years of work they've done where basically they've got us. They've got their hooks in, into our minds and they, the story they've told is the story we've come to believe. So actually the things that we hold in our own consciousness don't really even belong to us. The way that we understand reality, the way that we understand systems, the things that we think are possible and the way that we think the world has to be governed is not real. We, it's not a coincidence that we can't imagine other worlds and the Mark Fisher quote that I think that you know there's been discussed in preparation for this interview of it's easier for us to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism that's not coincidence so like like anything that was like genuinely new would initially seem ridiculous that would be that you know I mean that you know first day laugh that kind of thing it's Gandhi quote then you carry on you crack on with it then you win I don't know if that's Gandhi's exact words but like initially it would seem that if there was going to be any real and genuine alternative because like, a dear friend of mine who's a sort of a, a great student of the classics said like you know he said he said I just he said I studied 
democracy in its origins and how it worked in Athens. And he says that perhaps what we're experiencing now is the end of democracy. Do you think that something as seismic as that is what's happening now, mate? Well, you can see it that way. I prefer to see it in another way, to say this is an opportunity for a whole new democracy, a democracy based on the sense of belonging, based on community, where we own the political system as opposed to allowing it to be captured by this self-serving elite where we own large elements of the economic system which should also be rooted in community. We, we can rebuild a new kind of democracy which works for us. And I call it a, a politics of belonging, a mm. politics based on that fundamental human urge to belong. Um, and, and we can devise democratic systems which are more participatory they've still got the representative element but they are much more fine-tuned to our needs through different forms of participation through referendums through digital democracy there's there's all sorts of ways in which we can make sure that our voices are heard much better than they're mm. heard at the moment um, where we can begin to root economies in our community once more so that they can't be captured by um, by global corporations and the rest of it, where we have that sense of belonging to a community, being part of a story that we own, um, that is the opening which we've now got. And it's only when a system collapses mm. that you can create something completely new. And you're right, democracy as we understand it is collapsing. There's no question about that. It is collapsing. But let's look at it in a positive light and saying, right, it kind of needed to collapse. The way that it's been set up, the way it's been captured, all the really crap things that have happened in the past 70 years, it was inevitable that that was going to happen. But instead of just saying, OK, now it's going to be the era of global fascism. Uh, OK, uh, yeah, the era of right. global fascism now. Well, buckle in. <laughs> our, our, our task has got to be say, right, what are we going to put, it, put there instead? And, and I think what we put there instead is a much more real democracy, a much more answerable and accountable democracy, mm. which listens to us rather than to a tiny detached elite. You're right. You're actually right. The, the sort of the utilities that have been provided, the organisms that have been provided by capitalism, by the economic system of the last hundred years could ultimately be turned to good if you have that ability to understand people's needs and wants instead of using that knowledge to ha negatively harness their emotions and torture them you could use it to provide this sense of belonging which is what you believe they need but there's no way of delivering that George is there without the massive devolution of power mm. or the redistribution mm. of power it, I say, like, and I say, um, that's where I suppose one begins to understand why we have stasis and stagnation because evidently power is being withheld con and controlled. The story is being dominated. And the, the first step for anybody that wants to bring about real change is, I suppose, to look at who benefits from things being as they are and say, right, this is, these are the organisations and individuals that benefit from there being no change at all. These people, these organisations. And then you have to say, that's where the regulation and change has to happen. You can yeah. put them down on a list on one bit of A4 paper because there's less and less of them every day. And then you can say, right, this is where they're... And that, but I suppose what you have to build there is a consensus for change. And I think what you're describing there of a sense of belonging, a sense of community 
in a way, there's something sort of uh, um, atavistic, I suppose, a kind of a return to the way that we would live, not without technology, not without communication and connection, not without an, a global and international understanding, but people are kind of designed to live in small communities and to have control over those communities. And if they don't have that, they'll feel alienated, dispossessed, they'll turn to drugs, they'll turn to crime, they'll feel lost, they'll be doing jo jobs that mean nothing to them, making products, if they're lucky, that have no real impact. You know, the, and the other great thing about it is that it can appeal to anyone. You know, it's not just like the Labour Party talking to itself or the Green Party talking to itself. Say, so you people who voted for Trump... Here, here's something which is actually meaningful, which you can attach yourselves to, which doesn't actually conflict with your core beliefs. Mm. Community belonging that hardly conflicts with anyone's core beliefs except for psychopaths. You know, the only people who aren't into community and belonging are psychopaths. And that's only one in a hundred people when we can do without their votes. Yeah. Yeah. That one in a hundred, the psychopaths. <laughs> well, I want a society where... <laughs> Sadly, they are, tend to be the ones in charge because if, if you're... If you're born poor and you're a psychopath you end up in prison if you're born rich and you're a psychopath you end up in business school and, and you're quite likely to become president of the United States Oh my god but, it's an advantage for breeding <laughs> psychopaths But, but, but um, no it's true you know, the great 99% of people are ready for community they're ready for belonging because that's how we evolved we evolved in tight communities and we have that fundamental need mm. for those tight communities What we require is a return to our formative consciousness to understand this material world and and to at last realize it anew in connection with that now gareth the producer of the show is writing down a uh, some stuff on a on a whiteboard but what i'm actually going to like hold that for now because what you've written some questions already and i'm going to go through them in this new sort of rather more fast moving part of the show which i'm calling a conventional interview now <laughs> uh, in the uk uh, election george th these are some questions i want to uh, go through with you right now. Why has Theresa May called this election? Because uh, she's going to win. Right. What do the Tories have to gain? Uh, a huge majority and the freedom to implement all the policy they've ever fantasised about. What sort of things would they be? That would be the complete dismantling of public protections, the privatisation of large parts of the NHS, um, the dismantling of much of the public education system. Is that what's going to happen? So we're going to have an election, the Tories are going to really, really win, and then we're going to see the dismantling of public services. Yeah, in effect. Over, I mean, what, it, over the next five years. Yeah, I mean, it's happening already, but it is, this is going it? to be a great acceleration. And what they've got... Now, look, the really frightening thing is that um, they have two years to complete Brexit, right? In that time, they have to change the entire body of law between the UK and the EU. And in doing so, they're going to stuff things through Parliament, which MPs are going to have no chance to respond to at all, using something called statutory instruments. This is this lethal bit of parliamentary equipment, which is like a sort of royal command. It's like an executive order. No one has the power to resist it. You just say, oh, look, we're just tweaking it. Don't worry your little what heads sort of about things it. Will Go it off be? and have a drink. Well, a classic example... Um, uh, under David Cameron, the Tories promised there would be no fracking in national parks. No, there was this, some. Uh, he waited until, like, sort of um, late on a Friday evening when everyone had gone home to their constituencies. I mean, this doesn't seem like the right way to run a country. That's too stupid, isn't it? In, in national parks. They this, act like they're the grown-ups. I tell you what, 
everyone will have gone home on Friday. We're going to do a bit of fracking in National Park. Yeah, all right, see you later. I'm back at my, I'm back home. Well, that's absolutely absurd. And so that's how our democracy works. So un- under, what this, a sham. under this great repeal bill that the Tories are going to do to implement Brexit, they say they had to use between 800 and 1,000 statutory instruments. They're going to rewrite the whole body of law in this country and they're going to do it to favour their interests. So you don't think they're going to do any... Like, the Tory party, you think you can quite candidly say aren't primarily motivated by helping ordinary people. You know, after long and and um, diligent study over the course of well, the past 30 or 40 years... Yes, yes. To ...that conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> you've studied it, you've looked at the data, they're not trying to help ordinary people. So why do they keep winning these elections, George? What's going on? Do we, I sometimes think it's like an expression of some sort of psychological self-hatred at a mass level. Well, one thing to say, they haven't won yet. Everybody is saying, everybody is, we've been talking like they've won the election. I've seen some, no, yeah, it was you actually, I'm just over here being very neutral, like I'm a proper interviewer off of uh, dimblebee.com. Yeah, and we're talking what the Tories are going to do. Yeah, and of course, yeah, all the opinion polls, etc, etc. But, you know, can we have an influence? Weeks, there is a can chance. we whoop up a great storm? Like I like the sound of a coalition of chaos. I think that sounds like a nice thing. I like chaos. At least chaos isn't actually evil. Well, well, like, well, have a look at the whole way this has been spun. It's all about competence, you know, strong and stable and all this stuff, and mm. chaos on the other side. You know. And look where competence has got us. I mean, look where competence has got us. Tony Blair's competence got us into the Iraq war. Yeah. Gordon Brown's prudence got us into the biggest financial crisis we've had since the Great Depression. David Cameron's competence and assurance got us into Brexit. Oh, my um, God, these people are all idiots. Yeah. Well, well, the thing is that competence is a greatly overrated um, quality in politics because, actually, what it means is being blindly confident of your mm. own abilities and just being able to plough into one disaster after another. Now, the great thing you can say about Corbyn, he's not competent. Oh, George, <laughs> that's not going to help. That's not going to help well, the Tories. No, no, no. But what, I, what I'm saying is that, look, so, so you've got I'd rather have people that seem a bit kind and nice. But when did we get trained? To that's like what I'm of, saying. He seems a bit kind and nice. Fuck him off. Yes. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like When, that, when that, Boris exactly said that, what... he's a mutton-headed mugwump. Yeah, Why is yeah. that? Well, he's always talking about being nice to people and like, giving money to the disabled. We've got to get rid of him. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. So yeah, what do you want? Do you want a highly competent person, like supposedly Theresa May is, competently implementing an absolutely disastrous agenda, which is basically going to screw over anybody who's not super rich, or do you want a nice, kind, gentle bloke, who is a bit of a muddle-headed mugwump, yeah, okay. I like nice, kind, gentle blokes. Yeah, who's trying to make the world a better place and isn't going to be all that great at it. Well, you know, that's your choice. So you use brutal efficiency on the one hand and gentle inefficiency on the other hand. I'm voting for gentle inefficiency. Mm. I'm going to vote Labour because I think gentle inefficiency is better than brutal efficiency. I think actually what we could do within this country in politics is a bit of self-doubt and hesitation. Mm. We could do with someone who sort of scratches his beard for a bit and says, I'm not quite sure what to do at this stage, so I'm going to ask people. 
yeah, this rather than someone who says, bit. I know exactly what I'm jolly well going to do and I'm going to sweep everything out the way. This man, Sonny! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, everyone's, we've been trained to sort of like n- not respect or trust ourselves and to listen to sort of blind authoritarians uh, with vampiric self-belief. Now, look, I, I suppose what, like the sort of broader story it seems to me, George, is that we've, like, that we've let go of the idea, like those ideas that you talk about, compassion, community, belonging, have been so excluded from the political palette that now when they sort of are introduced, they seem somewhat absurd. Like you, now whichever way you look at it, a Tory government will like will reduce welfare, it will diminish the NHS, education will become less well-funded. And But like the Labour Party are going to scrap tuition fees. Now however you look at it, that's got to be better if you're a student to not be 90 grand or 50 grand or 40 grand in debt when you leave, you know, when you finish getting educated. That's got to be better. I suppose I suppose what the challenge is, is with like, it's a re- to what you were saying earlier, we find it difficult to imagine how things could be different. Uh, but like when you talk about the potential for a new democracy, I think the only way that I can begin to understand that is Britain becoming some kind of confederacy, so devolved, the idea of the nation becoming secondary, as it already is. It's already secondary to the interests of I- I- transnational corporations. Perhaps the nation should become secondary to the people that inhabit it. Self-governing communities. Perhaps we need to let go of ideas like progress. Where are we progressing to? What's the rush? What are we making all this stuff for? What are we buying all this stuff for? Perhaps what we need to do is slow down, calm down, devolve. What is this race? Where does it end other than the grave individually and potentially on a global level? Yeah, well, nobody wins the human race. Um, look, I mean, there's again, there's about 85 issues in there, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try and answer a couple of them. Yeah, look, it, it's absolutely right that if you, um, um, you know, a fundamental uh, principle of democratic politics should be that you devolve power to the smallest possible unit. That right, can that's good, it. I like that. Yeah. Devolve power to the smallest possible... So, so that's so, where libertarianism yeah, comes yeah. in. So about if the community can do it, let the community do it. Don't have some top-down government saying you will do it like this. And mm. a great example of this is participatory budgeting. You know, this was invented in southern Brazil. It's now spread to a lot of places around the around the world where you say, you know, the municipal government, the big sort of London government or the government of whatever the big city might be, um, up till now has been saying how our, our money should be distributed mm. and what it should be spent on. And sometimes it makes good decisions. Sometimes it makes really, really bad decisions. Sometimes it makes decisions for the benefit of an insider elite, like yeah. Boris Johnson's Garden Bridge thing, classic example of that. We- like a garden bridge, you shall have one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 whereas if you um, um, say to the citizens, you can decide. You know, we're going to have a really these big processes they do where they get vast numbers of people involved in a very clever way. You know, it's not just sort of a random thing, but you know, it's structured in a clever way. And basically, what you see then happening in these Brazilian cities is a massive reduction in infant mortality, a massive increase in water quality, a, a massive improvement in basic facilities. Well, because that's what people spend their money they, on. They want to spend... That's what people decide to spend We'd like to deal with this infant on. mortality thing. No, no, no. What about a garden bridge? No. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a bloody bridge. Look, stop having garden bridges. Could I make a case for another garden bridge? No, save these babies. I see. So de- that's the devolution of power. Like, sort of people could be, communities could be in charge of their own budgets. Yeah, so yeah. devolve power to the smallest conceivable unit. 
if you're a person that's listening to this podcast because you want to learn stuff, that's a thing that you've just learned. Hold on to that in your mind when you're arguing in a pub, perhaps with some drunk relative who's telling you that the problem is immigration. I don't know, you might not be drunk. We might not be a relative. You might not be in a pub. I don't know what you're doing is basically what I'm saying to you. Okay, so that's good. Hey, look, why did, uh, this is a bit t- somewhat tangential, why did uh, Bernie Sanders with his uh, more explicitly socialist agenda come so close to power? This was an amazing thing. You know, he started with 3% name recognition when he launched his bid for the Democratic Party nomination. He ended up taking 46% of the delegates, 22 states across the US. It was just amazing. And he was able to do that through something called big organising. And there's a great book about this called Rules for Revolutionaries explaining how they did it. And basically it was this mass proliferating network of volunteers. Instead of having these staffers who were sort of being paid by the party mm. to, to, to sit with their clipboards and, and, and work out how to do stuff, um, he, he, he said um, basically what they did was to devolve it out to groups of volunteers. They said, you can do this stuff just as well as we can. And we're and not then, paying. That's right. <laughs> and then one group of volunteers would, would train the next group and train the next group. They had 100,000 people working for the campaign. 100,000 people. And that led to that success, paid. but ultimately failure. Well, it was so close. You know, and it was so close. And what they say in this book uh, is that had they worked out what to do, a couple of months before they did that couple of months the, the trajectory oh was what a so gutter. close but but the, instead the trump thing there the, the sorry hopeful, yeah well exactly. <laughs> and I, th- I think if sanders had got the nomination the democrats would have won do you I, think, I think that so, because he was talking to people mm. clinton was just like a calling robot you know yeah. she she was like 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 the 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 world clock telling the time. I mean, it was hopeless. She wasn't connecting with people's emotions. She wasn't touching them in the soul. She wasn't mm. um, invoking that sense of attachment which people want. Whereas Sanders was able to do that. He was brilliant at that. He was, wasn't he? Was he was charismatic. He he told Charisma, people about eh? their own experience. He said, this is what's happening. And people said, yeah, that's what's happening to me. I hear it. I Just hear it. for power, you see. <laughs> yeah, no, you're quite right. It was phenomenal. So but it was that close. But the, the hopeful thing, which they say in the book, is what now book? we've worked out how to do it. Your Rules book. for revolutionaries. Rule, uh, that, but you're not even promoting um, your own book. You're promoting someone else's yeah, book. That's, no, no, yeah, well, that's well, nice. Yeah, well, that's a sort no, of guy, really yeah. nice, promoting rules for revolutionaries. We're going to read that one. Yeah, but, but uh, Hey, what about my belief, this thing here that I'm about to say? Uh... We don't make no difference that Trump's president. There's a system in place that's going to inhibit and prohibit any real change. It doesn't matter if you have Trump or Barack Obama. No real change happens. It's basically the same system. Immigrants were getting kicked out under Barack Obama. People were getting droned left and right under Barack Obama. What's the bloody difference? Hey, he sacked the head of the FBI. He's not sacked Mary Poppins. That's the head of the FBI. He's probably a right arsehole. <laughs> so, like, you know, like you, you, what you get within those systems is limited. Like, Trump, what, uh, uh, Goldman Sachs worried that Trump's president, uh, Halliburton worried, that, oh, no, real change is going to happen. Of course they're not. It's basically the same. So if Bernie Sanders had got in, would have gone, right, day one, you lot that are super powerful, here comes the regulation, we're having no more of that, that stops today, you're getting taxed up to the arsehole, you're finished. Is that going to, would that have happened? Well, well, not by himself. You see, the thing is, and this is what Obama fantastically failed to do and you know looking back on the eight years of Obama there's a whole catalogue of failure there but anyway what what Sanders would have done and Obama should have done was Mm. to take this mass network 100,000 people working for Sanders and say right we're going to stick with you 
we're not going to abandon you now yeah. that I'm in. You, the volunteers, can keep pushing this stuff out there, can keep phoning people up and saying, what about this programme for healthcare? Uh, here's how it could be great for you. Wow. And instead of just leaving it all to the professionals in Washington to stitch up, you, the volunteer army, are going to get out there and persuade people that this is the way it's going to be. And then Congress and all the rest have to fall into line because all the people around them wow. are saying, who are you to resist this? What are you doing resisting this when the whole damn nation wants this to happen? Because that's and, interesting, uh, isn't it, when you say that? Because it does keep happening. And you don't meet anyone who goes, yes, I want the NHS to yeah, be reduced. Yeah, no one. But it's no, going to definitely happen unless, unless the election goes the other way. And, you know, and, and Labour's in this position, you know, the, the, I mean, OK, Labour's all over the place because it's internally divided. It's at war with itself and all the rest of it. But it does have a lot of people volunteering for it. It has a huge membership. And that's where hope lies for the Labour. Party is to use that membership, not just for this election, but into the future, to get out there, to reach people, to talk to people, to to, to have those one-to-one -one conversations, which are the only things which ever change people's minds. You're right. You know what? You could imagine if the Labour Party were to win, that you could possibly build upon their foundation of like a, a renewal of state ownership of, of uh, amenities and their general sense of care and compassion for people. Upon that you could build continuing devolution, a continuing sense of community and belonging. You could get positive change. And like whilst it might be initially, oh this is not traditional, these sort of bearded blokes and people with accents and look there's a black woman. Like you know, like it might have not done the maths properly. Like it might be initially sort of something that's sort of unusual it could be a, a sort of a crucible for real change whereas if one uh, envisages the alternative it sounds like a sort of a grinding down into dystopia yeah yeah no it's it's true it's got to be big genuine grassroots organizing that is where hope lies it is, isn't it? With loads and I think and loads people find it hard to be enthusiastic volunteers. because, like you said, we've been we're punch drunk on celebrity yeah. and yeah, and not yeah. apathy, but a sense of legitimate sense it of impotence. It shuts down our imagination. I mean, that's a, political failure is at heart a failure of the imagination. And Ooh, and that's and, a good quote. Did you make that up? <laughs> And yeah, and and the more the, the, and and, and say I that, said it though. celebrity culture shuts down that imagination. Neoliberalism shuts down that imagination. There's all sorts of ways in which our imagination gets shut down, and to to rekindle politics, we've got to rekindle our imagination. I love that. That's quite good as well. Put that down as mine as well. <laughs> to rekindle politics, we've got to rekindle our imaginations. Come with me, and you'll be. George, we're about to wrap up this interview now. Let's promote your book. Which tell me about it, because I probably will read it. What is it? Well, it's not out. Yeah, it's, it's not till October, but it's, it's going to be called Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. And mm. what it's saying is, look, we are incredible creatures, human beings. We're the most altruistic, the most socially minded creatures of all the animal kingdom, with the yeah, possible exception of the naked mole rat. Um, of the entire, entire animal kingdom. We are the top altruists, and yes. yet we're stopped from being that. We can't, we're not being ourselves. By, we're not being ourselves. And what we need is a politics, is a political story which allows us to become that amazing thing that we are. So in this book, Out of the Wreckage, you are imagining this new world for us, mm. so that someone that comes along who's 
Quite quirky, sexy, nice eyebrows. Can nick some of those phrases and ideas, present it, and then I get my comfy palace. <laughs> like that, no, but you're sort of, you're starting to imagine these new realms and these new ideas. Yeah, well, well, and and to try to tell a new political story—that's the crucial thing to tell the story. And it's it's a restoration story. It's restoring our real nature, our real amazing, fantastic, kind, generous, good, huggable nature, which is Aww. what we really are. And and to do that, we have to imagine that better future it's a question of rekindling that imagination and and so what i'm talking about is saying right we're going to build this new politics and we're going to build it from the grassroots up we're going to do it through community we're going to do it through participatory budgeting we're going to do it by getting control of the political process once more we're going to do it by devolving power down to the smallest possible unit we're going to do it through the big organizing techniques of the kind that we've just been talking about through Ooh. mobilizing masses of volunteers and what we're going to do is transform politics to create a democracy that belongs to us. This We're is brilliant. A, poli- a politics of belonging. George, I think you've done the most practical podcast we've done. There's actual advice in there. There's actual systems and actual policies that we can use. Now, we're going to push this particularly to young people. We're going to get this podcast out to as many people as we possibly can because I think you conveyed some wonderful, uh, concise and beautiful information. And having known you and interviewed you before, I know how hard that is for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Plus, I didn't talk as much as usual, did I? Did you notice that? Well, you promised not to at the beginning. And then what happened? <laughs> I ranted. There were a few rants weren't there oh, one, or two, one or two of those sort of questions which had about a hundred issues in yeah they're not questions are they they're useless in an interview aren't they I mean but what about that bit when I did a proper bit it was interesting to listen to alright listen that seems like a good a place as any to uh, wrap up this show George you've been a fantastic guest Out of the Wreckage that's the book to look out for in October where uh, many of the ideas that you've espoused and brilliantly explained will be uh, in, imagined and rendered in greater detail. Thanks, George Monbiot. Thanks for being such a great teacher and a great friend. Are you going to come around the house? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, I'd like to see you in it. (laughs) You've been listening to Russell Brand Under the Skin with George Monbiot. I think you'll agree that I got right underneath George... Did I get under your skin then? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Don't be rude. The next couple of shows for my Rebirth Tour, which is the sponsor of this thing, uh, are sold out, but there's some tickets available for Southport, 23rd of May, Aylesbury, 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, where George Monbiot will be on stage kissing me on the mouth. Skegness, 15th of June, that's where George does his dancing. Bristol, 20th of June, George Monbiot as a cabaret lady. You're going to get a load of cancellations. <laughs> He's not really going to do that. RussellBrand.com for tickets. Thank you. For under the skin. If you like this show, subscribe. If you don't like it, you ask yourself why. Are you one of them fascists? Welcome to the show. We love you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>